0: And forgive my husky voice, not because I've been yelling at my wife, it's just that uh, one of those vagaries of the um, flu season. But that's okay, I'm feeling fine. I wonder if we could turn to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24 as you see up on the screen. We're going to take a bit of a quantum leap from our series in the Ten Commandments, probably around about 70 years from what I can gather, uh, into the future from when the Ten Commandments are given. And um, we're going to read Joshua chapter 24, starting at verse 1, right through to the end of 28. Please follow along with me as I read this with you. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for the heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants, and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out. I brought you. I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea and the egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the red sea but when they cried out to the lord he put darkness between you and the egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them and your own eyes saw what i did in egypt and you lived in the wilderness for a long time then i brought you into the land of the amorites who lived beyond the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor king of Moab arose and fought against Israel and he sent and summoned Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam so he had to bless you and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hevite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Verse 12. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them and you are eating of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord... Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us out, brought us our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way which we went and among all the peoples through who, through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord for he is our God. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. The people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance. And may the Lord add a blessing uh, to the reading of his word this morning. As I intimated, I want to capitalize somewhat on our recent series on the Ten Commandments. Capitalize in the sense that I want to challenge you with a response or to respond. Because if you read in chapter 20 of Exodus and onward, right through to the end of chapter 23 of Exodus, you would find that God then details to Moses what the Ten Commandments were to look like in the everyday life of Israel. And so after hearing this detail from Moses, the people were reverently fearful of Yahweh. And they responded with this statement in Exodus 24, verse 4. They said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's a fine statement, isn't it? But as you sort of track through their history, as you know, Moses was removed from the scene. And then Joshua was put in charge to lead Israel into the promised land and take possession of it. And so the book of Joshua is all about the conquest of Israel as they battle physically and spiritually to possess the land that God had promised them. Now Joshua being near 90 years old, when he took command of this mammoth task, he lasts until his death at 110 And like Moses, he gives a farewell speech and a final charge to the children of Israel in his closing days. And Joshua's charge to Israel before he died was a charge to respond and to nail their colors to the mast, as it were, as to whom they would serve and give their total allegiance to. That's what it was all about. Now don't jump the gun, I'm not Joshua or Moses and God willing I don't intend to die soon. But owing to all that God has given us in Jesus Christ, folks, owing to all the instructions that we have been given, not only in the Ten Commandments, but in all of the Scriptures, owing to all the the present and, and future blessings that we have in Christ and that we now enjoy, I also want to bring a charge or a challenge from God himself so that you too may respond in sincerity and in truth with words from the heart and say all the words which the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Because this is what Joshua does here in a text. He challenges God's people to respond appropriately. So why does Joshua do this? Well, as you know, at this period of the Israel's history, Israel was living in exciting times. They had defeated their enemies. They had laid claim to the promised land. The 12 tribes of Israel had received their inheritance. Cities of refuge had been set up. All that had been done. And so now... They could settle down and they could enjoy life a little. There were peaceful and prosperous times ahead. But it was also dangerous times for these people. Dangerous times. Simply meaning that in this time of ease, they could easily forget where, how and why the Lord had saved them and brought them thus far. They could easily forget that. You see, there was a danger also of them of them not being separate, but adopting the idolatrous lifestyle and even the religions of the Canaanites who still lived around them. That was a real danger. There was a danger that they would fall into a state of, of complacency, can we say? Come on, let's just take it easy. We can afford to lax up now that the pressure's off there was that kind of attitude that would easily pervade them. These were dangerous times for Israel indeed. So it is with this background and propensity for spiritual derailment that Joshua stands up and delivers to the people a challenge from the Lord. God wants them to consecrate themselves to him and his work. He he doesn't want them trying to live for him on one hand and dabbling with the gods and lifestyle of Canaan on the other. He wants undivided and wholehearted dedication or nothing else. That's the clear message of this passage. Folks, like Israel of old, the church too is living in dangerous times. We know that, you know that. Generally speaking, can I say the church today is becoming more and more like that church in Revelations chapter 3, 14 to 22, the church of Laodicea. There where we see a church that that has everything it needs except the power and the presence and the glory of God in its midst. And just as the Lord issued a call through Joshua all those centuries ago for his people to respond with wholeheartedness to the Lord, can I say, he issues a call this morning, the same call to his people on this day. And so let's take some time this morning to look at these verses and heed the call of God to us each one this morning. first call is a call of contemplation we see this in verses 1 right through to 13 and so as believers here this morning can i encourage you all to give some serious time for thankful contemplation for the way that the lord has led you you know i often do this i often do this my wife together and i often do this contemplate We contemplate our our life's journey. What for? To highlight the good times? They'll certainly come into it. To highlight the bad times? That will certainly come into it. No, the primary reason is so that we can highlight our journey in life in order to trace the good hand of the Lord in saving and protecting and guiding, guiding and ordering our days. Do you ever do that? You should do. I find this is good medicine for the soul. It chases away negativity. It kills depression in its tracks. It puts into perspective all the ups and downs in life. It takes the focus of self and puts it on the Lord and His grace in our lives. That's what it does. This good, healthy contemplation. Well, this is what Joshua calls the people of Israel to do here. He says, thus says the Lord, and then reiterates how the Lord had delivered, led, and protected, and ordered their days. He wants them to remember who they are, where they came from, and what the Lord has done and is doing for them. It would do us good to think back on those things ourselves, right? Individually this morning, and even collectively. And as we break this down a little bit further, we see in verses 1 to 12, there's a call to contemplate God's power and presence. You see, the children of Israel are reminded of God's sovereign choice through Abraham. We see that in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. How he redeemed their nation and delivered them from Egypt. How he manifested his power and glory on their behalf over and over and over again. They're reminded of the victories they enjoyed and the blessings that became theirs because of the Lord's work in their lives. I don't know if you noticed where it says, I did, I did, I have done this. It was all the Lord's work. And all the way through this section, the power and the presence of the Lord has always been with them. He never left them or forsook them. And everything they faced, he was there to see them through, even in the most difficult and humanly impossible situations. They were rescued by his grace. They were protected by his grace. They were provided for by his grace. They were held in the grip of God's undeserved grace. Dear people, contemplation of all that the Lord has done for you, done for us is a healthy invigorating exercise for the soul remember where he found you and what he's done for you how he has blessed you how he has worked on your behalf over and over, how he has answered prayer and how he has met your needs and do not forget this, that he has never ever left you He has promised to be with us at the end of the age, Matthew 28 verse 20 tells us. I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in chapter 13 verse 5. Folks, what can be better than that? We too, each one, are held in the grip of God's amazing undeserved grace. Let us gratefully contemplate the Lord's power and presence in our lives this morning. There's another call. It's a call to contemplate God's provision in our lives. We see this in verse 13. God's provision. We see in this verse how the children of Israel were unable to enjoy blessings that they did not deserve or did not work for. Where it says, I gave you a land in which you did not toil, cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. In other words, they freely partook of God's abundant grace, and as a result, they were blessed with more provisions than they could ever imagine. I think it was 12 years ago, or maybe coming 13, when we took possession of our present home. In the backyard, there were two insignificant fruit trees growing in the backyard. I didn't buy them. I didn't plant them. They were just part of our possession. All we had to do was wait. And what an amazing blessing those two fruit trees have been. You know how I love fruit. They have bore more fruit than I could ever imagine. And some of you also have been blessed with the overflow, right? Let's push the pause button here. Brothers and sisters. We need to contemplate the same truth. In Christ we have so much we simply do not, have not, and never will deserve. We were hellbound when God found us. Because of our sin. But in grace God rescued us. Through faith alone in Christ alone. We did not buy it, we did not work for this, we did not earn it and cannot earn God's grace and salvation. And not only that, we are forgiven, forever forgiven. Our sin was being buried in the deepest sea, never to be brought up against us. We are eternally forgiven and we made eternally secure and on top of that we are promised an eternal home with the Lord Jesus in heaven. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God and now we are enabled to understand the inerrant word in the Holy Scriptures. Titus 2 chapter forty, verse 14 says this, That the Lord... Of the Lord. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Folks, the believer has indeed been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Amen. Ephesians 2. We have more than anyone in this world can offer or can even begin to understand. God has been so good to us, right? He has been so good to us. He has abundantly provided. Now in the light of these truths, may I ask with kindness and grace here, why is it, and I ask my own heart this, why is it, owing to all that the Lord has done, And abundantly provided. Why is it that we so often have a hard time of simply loving and serving the Lord and identifying who we are and proving who we belong to? Why is it? Could it be that we have forgotten or pay little heed to God's provision in our lives? Or could it be the same reason that Israel gave God the flick, as it were. They committed, Jeremiah reminds us, they committed two evils, which kind of sums up their whole spiritual derailment. Jeremiah 2.13 says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, number one. Number two, to hew out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words, they became discontented they broke the tenth commandment they began to covet what God had not given them then they forsook God and tried in their own strength to satisfy their discontentment with temporary stuff of the world folks we do not belong to ourselves we dare not do that if we fear the Lord we dare not do that we've been bought with a price we're redeemed not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 to 19 tells us. This is God's provision to us of grace upon grace, and so His grace, God's grace, has a claim on us. It really has. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this, and, and he spends a whole 11 chapters explaining God's glorious grace in the gospel. And then he rocks in with chapter 12 and verse 1. I urge you therefore, owing to God's abundant grace in the gospel that he's explained in 11 chapters, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, folks, where grace has been abundantly supplied the responsibility to each of us is greatly increased. Let us with gratitude to God remember where we once were spiritually and all that he has done for us in Christ Jesus for his glory. (coughs) Secondly, there's a call to commitment. We see this in verses 14 to 15. And we see here that Joshua first gives in this call to commitment a challenge with a command. But note that this command has three facets to it, or three parts to it. He first commands them what? To fear the Lord, you see that? That's the first command, fear the Lord. That is, that they were to fear the Lord. How were they to show their fear of the Lord? They were to fear the Lord by being proactive and eradicating anything that competed with their allegiance to Yahweh. They were to get rid of any foreign god in their lives and serve Yahweh alone. God makes that clear, as we have seen recently in the first commandment, right? That he will have no other gods before his face. In other words, he will stand for no other competition. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that God is here and and other loves are here, 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 here down the list. No, no. God will stand for no other competition. Full stop. They were to fear God by wholeheartedly serving him alone. Folks, how we need this reminder to us today. How I need this reminder. You see, we need to also, number one, fear the Lord. That is, we need to reverence and honour Him for who He is, for He deserves to be respected and loved by those He has redeemed. And secondly, we need to put away other gods. All those things, in other words, all those things in our lives that come ahead of the Lord, or can I say, those things that compete with our allegiance to Him, Not to be put down the list, but to be put away and eradicated forever. And thirdly, we're to serve the Lord in sincerity of truth. This is the third aspect of this command. Serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. And uh, to serve means to fulfill the role of a slave. That's what it means. Actually, just about 100% of the time that the word servant is used in the scripture, it should be slave. But when our scriptures were kind of translated, the word slave had sort of different connotations and so they thought they would soften it a bit by putting servant. No, no, it's slave. So A slave (laughs) is owned by someone. A slave does his master's bidding. That's what we are, folks. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Let's not soften it by saying servant. So we're to serve, we're to fulfill the role of a slave. You see, we are his possessions and we should live as such. As servants of His, we do not belong to ourselves. As I said before, you are not your own; you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. First Corinthians six nineteen to twenty. Now the word sincerity here is an interesting word. What that means is wholeheartedly, completely, and with integrity. It's interesting that the English word that we have as sincere or sincerity it comes from two Latin words that mean without wax now you might think what on earth has that got to do well what it what it means what it uh, if you trace the origins of that word it was used firstly to to refer to trustworthy pottery dealers And these trustworthy pottery dealers, they sold pottery that was flawless and first class and and that didn't have any cracks or flaws in them that was patched up with wax because that's exactly what the dodgy pottery dealers used to do. They would perhaps buy pots or make pots and some of them would be flawed and have a crack in them and so rather than smash them, they would seal it up with wax and sell it as if it was the real deal. But when the, pot, when, the, when the patched up pottery was held up to the light, you know what happened? The wax cover up was easily spotted. It was insincere. So it is with people who have insincere lives. When people are held up to the light, insincere people are held up to the light, that is the truth of God's word, it exposes the cracks and the flaws their hypocrisy shows. God wants us to be what he's called us to be, folks. His loyal servants who are sincere and true without wax. He also challenged it with a choice. He gave them a challenge with a choice. You know, it passes the attention of many who read this section that when they read Joshua's famous choose you this day command, what he's doing here is he's calling Israel to choose between two sets of pagan gods. Back up verse 14, just to explain that a little bit. There you will see that the call is to serve Yahweh, right? Very clear. Serve God. And then Joshua puts it to them in verse 15. If that is disagreeable, you see that? If that is disagreeable, in other words, if you're not willing to commit, if you're not willing to wholeheartedly and sincerely with truth and honesty serve Yahweh, at least choose some gods. In other words, if you will not serve Yahweh, take your pick and be a traditionalist and serve the ancient gods of your past. Or be a liberal, can we say, and serve the relevant pagan gods of the present time. Matthew Henry, the commentator, puts it like this. You must choose, if not Yahweh, then take your pick from these dunghill deities. You see what Joshua is doing here. He pushes his hearers to the wall. He really puts it to them. He pushes to them wall and and to nail their colours to the mast somewhere. Now I hear you saying, "What on earth is Joshua doing?" That's a good question. What is he doing here? How could he, how could he advocate that these nothing pagan gods should or could ever be given the time of day? This is crazy. This is stupid. And I believe that's exactly the point that Joshua is making here. Joshua, by using this this shock tactic, or can we say reverse psychology if you want to put it, is making clear that if you reject Yahweh, you are senseless and stupid, and the only options left are absurd. They make no sense at all. My dear people, the same choice, the same tactics are needful today because you know why? There is so much gilly-gallying. There is so much indifference and traditionalism and liberalism in the church today. We need to choose. We need to get off the fence and make up our minds whose side we are really on. I really appreciated the honesty and openness of of a lady many years ago who came to our church with her husband and then one day rather than continuing her pretense she clearly told us that she did not have the faith of her husband and that although that she could discuss with us any matter of theology because she was well versed in all of it she was not a Christian And that she would not pretend and have us thinking that she was one when she wasn't. And she has never stepped inside the door of a church ever since. Sad, but at least she was honest, right? At least she was honest. She knew where she was at. Also remember another character from biblical history, Elijah from Mount Carmel? And the prophets of Baal and First Kings chapter 18, and then we'll know this, they would have been through Kings. He also needed to confront the people of his day, the people of God, with the same challenge. And this is what he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Same deal, same challenge. You see, these people of Elijah's day were vacillating. They were dithering. They were having a foot or trying to in both camps of worship. The Apostle Paul emphasizes this very same truth in 2 Corinthians 6, 15 and 16. Listen to this. What accord, he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That's pretty clear, isn't it? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Can't get much clearer than that, folks. You cannot have both God and the world. There's no such thing as a fence-sitter in God's economy. You cannot have him and all your worldly distractions, no matter how legitimate sounding you may make them, that compete with your allegiance and worship with him. It's just impossible it cannot be, God says. Either he is your only God or you have a God of this world. The third part of his challenge was was challenged by a personal example. This is see in the second part of verse 15. I love this famous statement of Joshua, as no doubt many of you here will also. Because why I love it is because here is an example of a leader leading by example. You all love leaders who lead by example, right? Sad to say in this day and age in our church, so many leaders fail in so many ways. But here is a leader leading by example. But also by saying that, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua not only sets an example for the people to follow, but what he does is he lays down a gauntlet for the people to walk through. He puts it to them again, using his own personal commitment to challenge the people to follow through. I don't know about you folks, but... As I look back over my 50 years as a believer, some of the most powerful challenges that God has confronted me with has been through the godly example of others. So here was Joshua, nearing 110 years old, about to finish his course, and by his own witness and testimony, challenging the people of God to commit themselves to the Lord. That's what he's doing at 110. How we need Joshua's today, right? How we need Joshua's today. We need men and women who would, by word and example, have their hearts fixed on Jesus Christ and his word and his will that come before everything else in life. How we need men and women like that. We need men and women who will be this kind of example We have too many folks, we have too many people who are indifferent, who are fence-sitters, and who justify their slackness with all sorts of excuses. We have far too many in the Christian camp like that. We need Joshua's, we need Daniel's, we need Ruth's, who, by the way, Ruth was a lady who said... By her word and example, said to her mother-in-law, Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where I die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What a wonderful word of testimony, and her life proved it, folks how we need men and women who are examples. Now here's the question. Here's the challenge. Don't just look at the leaders amongst this church because you're all leaders in some area or other. Does my life, ask yourself, does my life stand as a challenge to godly living? Is it an example and a witness to challenge people to live for the Lord? Or does my life mean just a sitting on the fence and does it only encourage mediocrity and indifference to my family to my wife to my husband to my brothers and sisters in the Lord to my work colleagues what kind of witness and example are you to those people in your life may you be challenged with that it's only one or the other thirdly We'll come to close on this one. This is our last section. It's a commitment to serve. As we see the response of the people, you know, if I if I were Joshua here, I would be so encouraged. And not only because they've been listening, by the way, because I obviously they had been listening, I would be so I would be so encouraged in this. But their response was one of love and repentance and loyalty. We see that in verses sixteen to eighteen. You see, what we see here is the resolve of the people in these verses, 16 to 18. And, and they assure Joshua that they want to respond to the Lord with faithfulness and to the loyalty to the Lord alone. They assure him of that. What an awesome feedback for Joshua the preacher to receive that day. If I were in Joshua's place and hearing that positive momentum building amongst the people and and all the responsive affirmations coming forward, our faith going down all around, I would be so elated, and I want to help them move forward and perhaps start arranging some Bible studies or discipleship programs or whatever. But look what Joshua does. Look what his response is. It's startling. It's shocking. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve Yahweh, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after you have done good. Wow. Why on earth throw cold water on such wonderful enthusiasm of the people? Surely you need to strike while the iron's heart would be any preacher's way of handling things right. Well, here's the reason why Joshua did what he did. See, Joshua understands like we all need to understand. and That it's easy for people to promise obedience to the Lord, but it's something else to actually follow through. I think his stern words are designed to curb their overconfidence and to make them look honestly at their own hearts and to count the cost it's a warning can I say using colloquial expressions it's a warning against easy believism and cheap grace he's saying don't take or make this decision lightly you need to understand what's involved. You see, folks, Yahweh is not someone who drools over easy decisions and emotionally charged choices. He wants you to count the cost. Jesus spoke of that, right? He spoke about unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be a disciple. He used other you go to Luke chapter fourteen and, and there he has a whole number of verses in Luke fourteen, starting at verse twenty six, and he says, What man who goes out to build a tower does not count the cost in order to complete it? And then he talks about what what king will go out to battle before he weighs up the situation to see if he's underpowered or not, in case he might lose it. Jesus really preached that we must count the cost. It is a costly thing being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you know that? It costs us our lives. Quoted that verse, we're not our own, we're being bought with a price, we're slaves of Jesus Christ. There's so much that we have to deny so much we have to walk away from. It costs, but that's okay. Joshua even reminds them here that they cannot do this on their own. They cannot just make a decision like that of their own. For this, is, this wasn't a, about some religious reformation here. No, this was about spiritual transformation that begins in the heart. It begins from the inside and works itself out. And it's only God that can do that work, folks. It's only God that can change the heart. We might be able to turn over a new leaf, which is enthusiasm. But God wants more than enthusiasm. And so, this is what Joshua wants to stop and think for them to think about. And so the people react with resolute faith to the challenge. We see this in verses 21 to 28. They say, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. And and so with that public confession, what Joshua does is he he leads the nation into an all-out oath of loyalty to the Lord. He leads them out into a covenant ceremony where they renew their love relationship. Three times in this section, the people affirm their desire to serve only the Lord. And then what does Joshua do? He takes them at their word. It's a bit like baptism, you know. I love the Lord. I want to obey him. How are you going to affirm that? You go public on it. And you testify that you belong to the Lord and are saved and you want to obey Him by going into the waters of baptism, wherever the water may be, immersion. That's what we call believer's baptism, where they nail their colours to the mast, publicly identifying themselves as belonging to Jesus Christ. It's a bit like that. But here we see that this solemn covenant with the Lord, what Joshua does, he writes it first in a book, it tells us there, as well as on a large stone as a public witness. Two places he wrote it down, in a book and on a large stone. It's a bit like when we take our marriage vows. There's usually a a rings involved, and so we pass rings from one to the other, and, and the rings become a symbol of the couple's declaration of love to one another. It's a bit like that. So what Solomon does is he writes it on a stone, or it's a bit like again when we make vows and promises before the living stones, which has been done a number of times in this church. And living stones, as you will know, according to Peter, is each believer. We are stones that are added to the building. Living stones. And as vows have been made before, living stones in this church, to raise their children up in the admonition and fear of the Lord, all this makes for a very, very solemn covenant. I encourage you to do that, by the way, you parents. If you've got children... If you really mean business and if you're ready to nail your colors to the mast, and if you really have a longing desire to be accountable to this church and before the Lord to raise you, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not a biblical thing, but it's a good and healthy thing for the family to promise to God to bring your children up in the way of the Lord. So this was a solemn reminder for a covenant before the Lord to remind the people that they would never go back on their commitment that they have made to God. Now, folks, whether you're a believer here this morning or whether you're not, I don't know. You may be and you may be not. This call is for you to give your life totally and fully to Jesus Christ, okay? That's what this call is all about. If you're not a Christian, that needs begin right now. Right now, with fully trusting God's word that he has given us his only beloved son to die for your sin. That needs to begin right now. And so what that means practically is that you allow him to be Lord of your life, not partially or not only on Sundays or when it suits, but forever and to grow spiritually in him. That's what that means. It means for our salvation and our ongoing sanctification, what the hymn writer said of Jesus, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. It means, please, Lord, run my life and I'll learn to listen to you. I'll learn to trust in you and to follow you. And whatever that means as the years unfold, that's what that means, to trust in the Lord. Your choice you make needs to be one or the other, folks. Nail your colors to the mast today, folks. Heed the call of God's servant of old. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And my prayer is that your resolve will be, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. May God bless his word uh, to us this morning. Shall we pray? (coughs) Our Father in heaven, we bow in your presence. And Father, we pray that our hearts each today might be touched and challenged with your word. Oh, Father, we confess that we're so often disloyal and indifferent, but, Lord, we long to be sincere and trustworthy and one who is truthful. Oh, Father, help us to stand firm. Help us to serve you fully, not half-heartedly. And so, Father, I just pray that if are any here this morning who do not know you as Savior, that they might seek someone out after the service to know more about what it is to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And for us here who are believers, challenge us, Lord, because we are living in dangerous times. Complacency can easily set in. Indifference can set in. Excuses can come easy to our minds. Lord, sort us out, we pray. Speak to our hearts. Do a work of grace in our hearts again, if that need be. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.